Hey, what's good, 9 o'clock? How are we doing this morning? I'm just curious, how many of you straight forgot to set your clocks back and you were on time to church for the rare once a year? Well, whether you're well-rested or angry that you missed that hour of sleep, welcome to Rocky Peak this morning. Whether you're here in the worship center, whether you're joining us in the Ridge, we are glad to have you. If you are here for the first time, special welcome to you. We're excited that you're spending this time with us, excited for what God's going to do. Before I jump, oh, my name is Jerry. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're going to go into our time of teaching this morning. I'm really excited. It's a fun passage, and the Lord's got something special for us. But before I do, I do want to comment on the fact that yesterday was all serve. And who here got to participate in all serve last night? Hey, if you participated in all serve, I just want to say thank you. And participating for some of you meant you were physically here. For some of you, it meant that you were supporting in different ways through resources and prayers. But regardless of your involvement, Rocky Peak, thank you for what you did. The gospel was advanced yesterday through all serve because of what you did. But before I jump into our time of teaching, what I was reminded yesterday is that there is a group of people here at Rocky Peak that were serving yesterday, but they also serve our church faithfully each and every day. In fact, I would say, honestly, they're the glue that holds Rocky Peak together, and I want to publicly thank them, and they are our campus care department here at Rocky Peak. <laughs> Yesterday, as soon as you were all dismissed to go to AllServe, Campus Care moved in and immediately set up this room to get ready for services. They are always taking care of the big and small, anything that our campus needs. I have been coming to Rocky Peak since I was 15 years old, and the entire time I've been here, Campus Care has modeled for me what it looks like to joyfully serve sacrificially and to give to the Lord. And so with that, I just want to thank Martine, Jose, Rodrigo, Manuel, James, Brett, Luis, Terry, Edie, and I'm sure I'm forgetting many, many others, but thank you for what you do. <clears throat> So as we go into our time of teaching inside your program, you've got a green and white message note sheet, which is a great tool to help you follow along with this time of teaching. Also, there's some blank space on that note sheet intentionally. It's there to be able to jot down anything the Holy Spirit is specifically prompting you to remember. I'm going to pray, and we're going to dive right in. <clears throat> Father, I just want to thank you for what you did through the lives of the Christ followers here yesterday. I want to thank you that you used us as a church to advance your gospel in a tangible way by loving our local communities. Father, I pray that yesterday was a catalyst in many lives for people to not only see opportunities to serve, but for people to embrace their calling that we are all as Christ followers called to advance your gospel. I pray that as we come out of all serve for another year, that we realize that we don't need to wait another year to advance your gospel, that you give us opportunities each and every day. In fact, sometimes you give us opportunities each and every hour, whether it's through a simple conversation, whether it's through a prayer no one knows we're saying, whether it's how we treat someone in Target or in our own family. Father, let us be intentionally looking for ways to advance your gospel. Jesus, as we open up your word this morning, that's going to be Paul's reminder to us that this is our mission. And so, Father, we are here this morning to hear what you have to say for us, and we are committing to listen to you clearly with humble ears. As I often pray as a communicator, may I become much, much less this morning. May I become not the focus, but may you, Jesus, our King and our Lord, be the focus in what we're dwelling on as we leave this place. We love you, Jesus, in your son's name. Everybody said, amen. So if you're here for the first time, let me take a few moments just to bring you up to speed. This morning, we're going to be continuing the series we've been in for about the last eight or nine weeks called The Gospel. Now, this series is based on one of the letters we have in the second half of our Bible, the New Testament. It's a letter written by a key leader in the early movement of Jesus, a man named the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to Christ followers that are situated in and around the ancient city of 
of Philippi, which then and now was located in Greece. Now, Paul, several years earlier, before writing this letter, helped start this church. He led many of these people to the Lord himself, and through that, they became very close friends. And so the heart in this letter is that more so than in any of the other letters we have in the New Testament, Paul uses the word, the gospel, the word or phrase, the gospel. And so what Paul wants us to understand throughout this letter to the Philippians is that the gospel message is bigger, brighter, bolder, deeper, more epic than we often understand. But also he wants us to understand that the gospel is not simply a message we hear, but it is a life we are called to lead. Michael every week has been saying it in this way, that the gospel is more than a message to be believed, but it is a life to be lived. And so as we open up Philippians this morning, let me give a little context to where we've been. Over the last three weeks, Michael has been unpacking a section of Philippians that is considered the heart of the letter. That section started back in chapter 1, verse 27, when the apostle writes, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And over the last three weeks, as we've unpacked that, we've seen that to live a life worthy of the gospel is to live a life that is being transformed to look more and more like the character of Jesus. And so these last three weeks have been very key weeks in the study. And so if you've missed any of those weeks for whatever reason, or if you just would like a refresher, you can always check out those messages on our YouTube page or through the free Rocky Peak app. Now today, as we continue, as we transition out of that section, we're coming into an interesting uh, section in Philippians in which Paul is going to outline travel plans. In essence, he's given us a travel itinerary of two of his co-workers, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Now, in Paul's letters, it's not totally uncommon for him to give us travel plans, but when we do encounter them, we tend to encounter them more at the end of his letters. Paul is strategically inserting this here because he's showing us more than just what the travel plans are going to be. He highlights these two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, as models of what he's been talking about. He shows these two men as examples to follow that they are living a life worthy of the gospel. And by looking at those models, it's an encouragement to us that through the power of God, this life worthy of the gospel is attainable for each and every one of us. And so there on your note sheets, if you're following along, You've got a section titled The Travel Plans. And if you've got your Bibles, open them up. If you've got your apps, turn them on. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 19. And as always, when we go to the when, when I'm leading us into the Word together, if you've got a pen handy, you get the highlight function on your apps ready, we're going to mark this up this morning. So starting at verse 19, Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered. Would you underline that word cheered? That I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. And so let's stop right there and unpack that. What the word cheer means is that Paul is saying that I hope to hear from Timothy and I hope to experience joy that you not only read my letter, but you are actually responding to it. So if you've been with us on this journey, you've seen that while Paul has encouraged the Philippians, he's also addressed a serious issue, which is, which is disunity which is infighting. And understand, as we're going to talk about this later on in, the, in this message, disunity is a massive roadblock to the advancement of the gospel. And so what Paul is saying is, I hope to hear that you're not just nodding along with these words, but you're actually putting it into practice. Again, this is Paul showing his heart and his big picture that the gospel is not just to be heard, it is to be lived out. And in this specific case, the gospel is lived out through the pursuit of unity. 
And then he continues, and he continues to have a, heart, he, a heartfelt dialogue about his relationship with Timothy. So in verse 20, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern. Would you underline that? Genuine concern for your welfare. Verse 21, for everyone looks out for their own interests, not, of, not those of Jesus Christ. Verse 22, but you know that Timothy has proved himself. Would you underline that phrase? Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served me in the work of the gospel. Now let's stop right there and unpack this. So to say that Paul and Timothy had a close relationship would honestly be an understatement. The truth of the matter is that Paul regarded Timothy as his spiritual son. When Timothy says, when he says, I have no one else like him, he is expressing the depth of their relationship. And when we look into their history, see, in the book of Acts, when we get to the story of the Apostle Paul, it chronicles what he does, his preaching, his church planning, and a series of what we call missionary journeys, in which he travels around the Gentile world to proclaim the truth of Jesus, to help begin churches. And what we know from the New Testament is that it was in his first missionary journey that Paul led this young man, Timothy, to come to know the Lord. And then we see that in his second missionary journey, this young man, Timothy, this young believer, joined Paul in his effort, in his work of advancing the gospel. And so think about this. Timothy and Paul serve the Lord together. They travel together. They shared countless meals together. They saw people come to the Lord together. They succeeded together. They also failed together. They also suffered together. They also were persecuted together. And through it all, the depth of the relationship is built on the transformation they got to witness in each other's lives. Paul got to witness firsthand how Jesus continued to transform Timothy's character to be more of a reflection of Christ. Timothy got to witness firsthand how the Lord continued to transform Paul's character to be a reflection of him as well. And so that built a depth of unity amongst them. And so what I love, I had you underline that phrase, there is no one like him who will show genuine concern. And so what Paul means here is what Michael unpacked just a few short weeks ago is that Timothy has the mindset of Jesus. Timothy has been transformed to show that mindset of humility. And what that means is that Paul, when he looks at his friends and family in Philippi, his concern is, is the gospel advancing? Is the gospel transforming lives? And now he's telling us that Timothy shares that same concern. As this is Paul's main concern in everything he does, this is Timothy's main concern in everything that he does. And Paul makes that statement that everyone looks out after their own interests. And again, Michael unpacked this a couple weeks ago, but that's the tug we still have to sin, isn't it? That's the tug we feel to still make ourselves and our hopes and our desires and our interests, even if they're good, to make them the God of our lives. And often what Paul does is Paul contrasts these things to remind us of our identity. See, Christ follower, this is the reminder from the Apostle Paul that before you knew Jesus, before you submitted in beautiful repentance to his leadership, that was you. Your own interests were the God in your life. That is what drove you, your success, your interests, your happiness. But when Jesus came into your lives, he transformed you. He healed you of your sin. He resurrected you. And now you have been freed to take on the mindset of Jesus and to show that genuine concern as Jesus does for the sake of the gospel. And then the, third, the, the other thing he says about Timothy is that Timothy has proved himself. Now this is a little unclear in English because we think maybe Timothy has earned or won an award, but in the Greek, this is referring to the fact that Timothy has displayed his character. 
When Paul started this church in Philippi, Timothy was with him. The Philippians firsthand got to witness that Timothy's life had been transformed by the power of Jesus. And so as Paul says this, they know that Timothy is living proof that Jesus transforms lives. And so what I love about this is that Paul doesn't highlight Timothy as a, Timothy as a, as a spiritual elite that nobody can attain. The reason why Paul is highlighting these character traits about Timothy is to show us all that the same Jesus that transformed his character is the same Jesus that transforms our character. And then he goes on in verse 21, excuse me, in verse 23. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. Remember that Paul is imprisoned waiting trial. And so at this point, Paul doesn't know if that trial is going to end with an eventual release, if it's going to end with an execution, if it's going to end with more prison time, or if there's any political or legal red tape. But what we do know is that Timothy is with him in Rome. Timothy's not imprisoned as well, but he's there to serve. And there's a lot of reasons why he's probably hanging on to Timothy until Paul gets a verdict in his trial. But one of the clear ones we see is that Timothy is obviously a comfort to Paul. Think about it. When you're going through some deep, dark seasons of the soul, when you're going through some pain and suffering, just having a friend present means the world, doesn't it? And so we see that in him. But verse 24 is fascinating when he says, I'm confident. Again, we don't know the specifics, but it sounds as if the Holy Spirit is stirring in Paul's life. It sounds as if the Holy Spirit is starting to stir and reveal that this trial is not going to end in his execution. And so as we transition out of the first model, Timothy, now Paul is going to begin in talking about Epaphroditus. Now, if you remember, we've talked a little bit about Epaphroditus as we've gone throughout this series. He is the representative of the church at Philippi. They sent Epaphroditus to Rome with a care package. So he made the 850-ish mile journey. It likely took him a month and a half, two months to make it. And he was not only sent with a financial and a resourceful care package for the Apostle Paul, he was also sent with the orders that stay, serve the Apostle. See, the church at Philippi were concerned about their brother. And so they sent a representative to be able to care for his practical needs needs. And so here in verse 25, but I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier. Would you underline those titles? My brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of all my needs. Verse 26, for he longs for all of you and is distressed that you heard he was ill. And so, as Paul speaks about Epaphroditus, he uses these titles to, to show the high value he has for him. The very first thing that he calls him is brother. Now, we need to understand what Paul means when he uses family language. And so, we need to be honest, brutally honest about how we view the Christian life today. If you've been around religious environments for any length of time, at some point you have heard the phrase, church is supposed to be family. We are all brothers and sisters in the Lord. We are God's family. And so if we examine ourselves truly, we would all probably say we've heard that, and many of us would probably say we don't believe that. We might look around this room and go, nope, not my family. We may look around the room and go, well, I don't feel a connection. I don't feel that family connection to people. And the reality is because as we use Rocky Peak language, we often view that as a filter. We either view that as a Christian nicety, a Hallmark card that we say, hey, your family in Christ, or we simply don't understand what that means. And so when the Bible talks about us being as family, we need to remove the filters and we need to understand that it does not use that term flippantly. 
When the Bible refers to us with family language, particularly in the New Testament, what it's saying is that when Jesus transformed your life, you've heard me say many times that Jesus didn't simply make us slightly better people, but Jesus transformed everything about us. What happened is you literally became a brand new family. And so hear me, whether you liked it or not, whether you wanted to be related to me or not, you're stuck with me. You are now family. And so we, as Christ followers, are family. Christ followers on the other side of the globe, we are family. The apostle, Timothy, and us, we are now family. And so by Paul saying that about Epaphroditus, he's not only declaring this new community that God has done, but he is also declaring that he has a commitment to his family. And then he uses the titles of co-workers and soldiers. And he's talking about the fact that Epaphroditus is one of many who have accepted the responsibility to advance the gospel and this is something that Paul often models and writes about. We've seen this throughout Philippians already, that the gospel is not advanced through a few select spiritual elites. The gospel is not advanced through two or three celebrity pastors and no one else. The gospel advancing is a complete team effort. The gospel advances through each and every one of us. And so I'm going to unpack that more later. But let's keep reading. Verse 27, indeed, he was ill and almost died. Would you underline that? He was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him. Put a box around mercy. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. So I detailed earlier what the plan was for Epaphroditus, right? And as often happens with the best laid plans, the unexpected reared its head. And so what happened is Epaphroditus fell ill. In fact, he fell so ill that he almost died. Now, we don't fully know how Philippi heard about us, but one of the leading theories is since Epaphroditus was traveling to Rome with, with, our, with a large sum of money for the apostles' imprisonment, it was likely that he wasn't traveling alone that he had some people to help act as bodyguards in case anybody tried to hold him up. And since he got ill on the way, they likely went back and informed the Philippians of what's going on. So again, we don't know the exact nature of the illness, but we know that it was gravely serious, that it almost killed him, that he was near death. Now, I want you to emotionally connect with the situation and to, under, to try to connect with why the church at Philippi would be distressed by this. Imagine that you heard and found out that a dear member of your family was dying, is likely going to die. And imagine that you not only hear that a dear member of your family is likely going to die, but you know that they are far away and there is absolutely nothing you can do about it. You can't contact them you can't get up and go see them. They can't do that to you either. All you know is they are suffering and you can't help. That's distressing, isn't it? And that's what the Philippians are experiencing. And on top of being sick, that's what Epaphroditus is experiencing as we go into this. But then Paul talks about God's mercy in the situation. See, in the ancient world, it was actually very, very rare for somebody on death's door to survive that. And so what Paul is acknowledging is that Epaphroditus being healed is a supernatural intervention. Now, he doesn't go into details. We don't know if, this if the Lord used medicine and, and, and the science available at the time. We don't know if it was a straight-up miracle. It could have been a combination of the both. But regardless, Paul is putting the focus on God, that God's mercy is why, Epaphroditus, is why Epaphroditus was healed. And then the apostle also shows us just a radically honest insight in which he states that had Epaphroditus died, it would have been sorrow on top of sorrow. Now, if you've been with us throughout this journey in Philippians, we've seen the apostle demonstrate a genuine joy, haven't we? 
But understand, experiencing genuine joy doesn't mean you ignore the pain and suffering that's in your life. What a beautiful honesty that Paul is saying, I've already been suffering. Had my dear friend and brother died, that would have hurt and cut deeply. And so with that, let me do a quick sidebar. This is a beautiful reminder that the men and women that God uses in scriptures were not superhumans, they were regular human beings. Christ follower, please hear me clearly, acknowledging and experiencing pain, suffering, depression, anxiety, that does not make you any less Christian. But we see that there is a God that is bigger than that, that can give us joy even in the midst of that suffering. And so Paul continues in verse 28, Therefore I'm all the more eager to send him, so that you may see him again, and you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Would you underline that? Again, I love that honesty, and I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help and you, you yourselves could not give him could not give me. They couldn't help him practically because they were 850 miles away. He's not sliding or knocking them. He's just acknowledging the practicalities. And I love what he says. He says, when Epaphroditus comes back, have a parade in his honor. Have a standing ovation. But not just that. Paul is modeling the fact that this was not our plan. You guys sent him with a plan. I had an expectation for how he was going to serve. But you know what? The unexpected happened. So this was God's plan. And Paul is modeling having plans is not a bad thing. But not submitting those plans when God changes our plans are. And so he's saying, hey, Epaphroditus, rolled with the punches. I am releasing him from my service and honor him and anyone like him who will obey God no matter where the unexpected takes them. And so that's our passage today. And so what I want to do in the time as we transition out of this is there's one key truth in this passage as Paul shows these men to be model, they are models of what it looks like to partner with him in the work of advancing the gospel. And through that, there is a key truth that I want to unpack and then see how that key truth flows into some other areas of our lives. So if you're following along in your note sheet, you got a section titled, One Essential Truth. And your fill-in is this. We are partners in advancing the gospel. We are partners in advancing the gospel. And as I touched on a little bit earlier, often what we see in the Apostle Paul's writing is that the advancement of the gospel is not the mission of a few spiritual elite. The advancement of the gospel is our mission, is our calling. And so the reality is, if the gospel of Jesus is going to advance, then as Christ followers, we need to be crystal clear on whose responsibility it is for advancing the gospel. And so if you are in Christ, if you are a Christ follower, what that means is that at some point in your life, you personally experience that Jesus is real. You experience that he is who he said he is, who he claimed to be, that he is the king, he is the Lord, that he is the Christ, that at some point in your life, because of that experience, you have repented of your sins in a beautiful act of repentance. You have experienced his forgiveness. You have submitted to his leadership in your life, and now you will follow after him imperfectly at times, but you will continue to follow his leadership. You 
you are in Christ and whether you have been in Christ for decades or whether you have been in Christ for hours, because you are in Christ, you are a new creation and by being the new creation, this is now your mission. This is who you are. The gospel does not advance through just pastors and preachers. We have a role to play, but the gospel advances through the entire family of Jesus using their gifts, using their marching orders, and going out. See, I love back in chapter one, the last time I was with you, that Paul is celebrating that when he was imprisoned, the church stepped up. They stepped up and continued the work of the gospel. And he's not just making this up on his own. When Paul charges us to this, he's echoing the words and the commands of Jesus himself. So there in your note sheet is one of the most famous pieces of scripture, Matthew 28, what we often call the Great Commission. But keep this in mind, Jesus is not speaking this to an elite. He's speaking this to all Christ followers. And he says this, Then Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Would you underline that? Because we need to understand what Jesus is calling us to. He doesn't say, go and make people that attend church once a week. He doesn't say, go and make people that are slightly better. He says, go and make disciples, people that have been transformed and are committed to the leadership of Jesus of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything. Again, underline that, obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Isn't that a beautiful ending statement? In fact, apart from what we're looking at Philippians, I know firsthand that there are some of you here this morning that that is what you needed to hear from the Lord. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And then below that from 1 Corinthians 3, for we are God's co-workers. For we are co-workers in God's service. And so this is our calling. And so hear me very clearly. This is not, as Christ followers, optional because this is a core part of our new identity. As, those to, as someone who is now called to advance the gospel, that is an inseparable part of my new identity in Jesus. Now, with that said we need to acknowledge some emotional realities, don't we? There are some of you here that hear that, that receive that, and all you feel is excitement. All you feel is this holy passion. You're like, let's do this. Whatever you want, Jesus, I'm game. Big, small, in between, at my work, in my family, in the community, I'm ready to do this. That is awesome. Now, there is another group of us And I would dare to say the majority of us that yes, maybe we do feel some excitement, but the prevailing emotion to this is a sense of intimidation, is a sense of fear, is a sense of trepidation. And often it's rooted in this question. Well, God wants me to advance the gospel. (laughs) What in the world do I have to offer to this mission? I know there's been many times in my life where I've wondered that myself. Can some of you relate? We acknowledge and we understand this is the most important mission in the history and all of, for all of eternity. And it seems often that there are people that are beautifully equipped to do it, and then there's me. What do I have to offer? In fact, some of you, maybe you can relate with these thoughts. Well, what do I have to offer? I'm not trained in this. I don't know the Bible well enough. I didn't go to school to understand the Bible. I'm not fully sure how to actually use the Bible. Or I don't really know if I understand how to pray. There's this person in my life group that prays so beautifully and everybody cries after they pray. And I'm sitting there kind of with trepidation. I don't know what to say. There's some of us that go, well, what do I have to offer? I'm still pretty messed up. I struggle with sin. I'm not 
holy. I sin and I give in to temptation and I doubt. And it seems as if sometimes there's Christ followers around me that don't. It seems that they never struggle. It seems that they never doubt. It seems that they've got their temptations under control. Or some of us, it's a stage of life thing where we sit there and go, well, what do I have to offer? I'm too young. Or some of us, what do I have to offer? I'm too old at this point. Or some of us, what do I have to offer? I've got a lot of kids and I'm barely keeping my head above water at that point. Or I've got a crazy job and a crazy schedule. I mean, what do I possibly have to offer? There's some of us that sincerely, our struggle is, well, what do I have to offer? I'm too damaged. I have been significantly hurt in my life and I'm still dealing with that abuse. Or I'm still dealing with that divorce. Or I'm still dealing with that passing and that loss. There's some of us that it's a physical ailment. What do I have to offer? My mind is willing, but for whatever reason, whether I'm chronically sick, whether I have a type of disability, like my body won't be able to do it. And we could go on and on and on about these doubts, right? But the reality is this is a very honest question. If you've ever wondered that, if you've ever struggled with that, you are not any less with a Christian. You are what I would call normal And with that, family, we need to take a spiritual deep breath. Because the reason we are called to this mission, each and every one of us as Christ followers, is because you have something wonderful to offer this mission. And that is the fact that you have Jesus. Now, that may sound as if it's the churchy answer, right? But let's understand the magnitude of what this means. When you gave your life to Jesus in that beautiful act of repentance, Jesus didn't transform you and go, okay, I'll see you in heaven. Jesus took up residence in your very life. Elsewhere in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul describes us that we are now the temple. Throughout the Old Testament, throughout the history of the nation of Israel, the temple was understood and revered as the literal place where God dwelled. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the place of God's dwelling place transitioned from that one local temple to you. Jesus now lives in you, Christ follower, and what that means is that the power that conquered sin, death, and hell, the power that resurrected your dead soul, the power of creation, as Matthew 28 says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, the power that brought the kingdom of God down, heaven to earth, the power that transformed us and continues to transform us, that is the power that now lives in you. And so when you wonder, what do I have to offer? You have the power of the risen Jesus living in you each and every day. And that makes you, whatever your story, whatever your hurt, whatever your background, that makes you more than qualified for this mission. You know, recently I was reading a book on Philippians. And I like something that one of the pastors that was contributing says, that if you look at the whole of Scripture, rarely, rarely do you ever see God advancing the gospel through the best and brightest he could find. In fact, if that was the criteria, the majority of the people God used would have been disqualified. And that's true when you begin to do a study. That it's not about who we are, but it's about who God is within us. And let's look at how that's true. If we just look at our passage, let's look at these three guys. First of all, you have Paul. Paul grew up as a religious snob. Paul grew up as one of those people who Michael talked about last week, that they looked very religious, but they weren't transformed. They were dead on the inside. In fact, because of Paul's upbringing and background, Paul committed truly vile and evil acts against the people of Jesus. There is blood on Paul's hands. The early church was terrified of him. 
When you look at Timothy, Timothy grew up in a mixed race and a mixed religion household, a Greek Roman father and a Jewish mother. Timothy had what we call one spiritual parent, a mother and a grandmother who raised him in the Holy Scriptures. Timothy was just a kid that other people looked down upon because of his age. If you look at Epaphroditus, we don't know a lot, but we know some key things. One, we know he's a Gentile. Just look at his name. He is named after a Greek goddess. And if you were part of the Jewish religious establishment that Paul was once part of, the fact that he was a Gentile meant that Epaphroditus was part of the wrong race. And yet the Lord used these men to advance the gospel. Let's look at the Old Testament and we're not going to look at everybody. I'm going to go through some rapid-fire examples of the motley crew that the Lord called to advance the gospel. If we go to the book of Genesis, we see a man named Jacob who was a liar and a cheater, who literally wrestled with God and ended up with a permanent physical limp. If we look at Moses, we see a man who significantly had anger issues. We see a man who was poised to be in leadership of the most powerful nation known to the world at the time, but his anger issues drove him to murder, and we also see that he had a speech impediment and couldn't talk well. We look at a woman named Rahab who was a prostitute, a brothel worker in a city that was filled with literal enemies of the Lord God. And yet when she's talked about in the New Testament, she's talked about a pillar of faith, as a pillar of faith. We look at a man named Elijah who was a nothing guy from a nothing town. And yet God called him out of nothing to be a prophet in his name. We look at a man like David who was neglected by his own family who at one point committed adultery and had an affair that ended up leading to murder, who later on, because of sin in his life, we see that David at times was a truly terrible father. And yet, these are men and women that God used to advance the gospel. And then if we look at the New Testament... We look at someone like Peter, who was an average fisherman, nothing more, and who often let his emotions get the best of him. We look at somebody as Matthew, who was a career embezzler as a tax collector, but not just that, who worked for the hated Roman government, who was oppressing the Jewish nation, trying to erase their religion and their culture. We look at someone named Simon, who was a zealot, who the zealots hated the Roman government so much that they felt that assassinations and murder were justified. We look at a woman such as Mary Magdalene that in a religious establishment that has significantly devalued the role of women, she not only traveled with Jesus and his ministry, she was the first to experience and the first to tell others about the resurrected Jesus. We look at a man named James who was the half-brother of Jesus. He grew up. He witnessed firsthand Jesus live a sinless life, and he still didn't believe in him. And yet the Lord used these men and women to advance the gospel. And because of the great power of God that lives in you, hear me, Christ followers, you are part of this lineup. You are part of this team. Your story, your background, what the Lord has done and what the Lord is going to continue to do is because he has called you to join this team and to advance the gospel. And so again, understand, to ignore this call is to ignore our identity. Because now that we are in Christ, we share this wonderful calling to be partners in advancing the gospel. Amen? So as Paul has called us to advance, then the question is, well, how are we equipped? How do we do that? And each and every one of us has been given specific giftings, specific strengths that will, uh, that will call us to do that in our specific lives and circles. But at the same time, there are ways that God universally equips us and transforms us. And I want to look at a, key, a couple key ways in that. So there in your note sheet, you've got a section titled, How the Gospel Advances. And the fill-in is this, the gospel advances through our transformed character. 
the gospel advances through our transformed character. For many of us, when we think of advancing the gospel, we often think of using words. Now, words are an incredible tool, and there are going to be significant times when words are going to be how we advance the gospel. But advancing the gospel will not always require words. But advancing the gospel will always require character. Advancing the gospel will not always require words, but advancing the gospel will always require character. If we are to say that this message is about how a loving, powerful Jesus transforms our lives, then we need to display those transformed lives. We need to display that we are people still imperfect, but who have been radically transformed by a loving and merciful Jesus to become more like him. Yesterday morning, as we gathered for All Surf, Pastor Brian Moorhead, our global ministries pastor, got up here to give us a charge. And I absolutely love what he said that as he charged us to go and advance the gospel, he said that you are the message. Your life is the message. You are living proof that Jesus is real, that his gospel transforms lives, and that we can be his reflections in our everyday world. If we go back to Matthew 28, that call to go and make disciples, the question is, well, how do we make disciples? We make disciples by first being disciples. We make disciples by modeling what that looks like to submit, to listen and follow. And so the words that God may call us to use are only as effective as the Jesus-led transformation that backs them up. The gospel is advanced through our transformed character. And so as Paul emphasizes this throughout his letter to the Philippians, in our passage today, he specifically highlights these two men, and there is an area of each of their character that he uses as models of this transformed character. And so in the time we have left, what I want to do is there in your note sheet, you've got two key areas. I want to unpack these models of how the Lord wants to transform all of our characters to advance the gospel. So the first area is this, a transformed character pursues unity. A transformed character pursues unity. This has been a core recurring theme in this letter, hasn't it? Because this isn't just a core theme to the church at Philippi. This is a core theme to the heart of each and every believer. See, understand, it is our responsibility to partner with the Lord to advance the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is a message and a life of unity. The message of the gospel is that we were so loved by God the Father that he sent his one and only son to bring unity to a people who had chosen disunity through sin and darkness. And so when we give our lives to Jesus, we have been reunified into that. And what's amazing about this unity, the fact that we are now family, is that we still retain a beautiful diversity. We are different people with different backgrounds, different gifts. We are on different parts of the globe. We are now family with global Christ followers, with different interests and different specific callings, but we all are unified under the same Father. And to go out to encounter people that have yet to know Jesus, what we are truly saying is that just as Jesus brought unity back into my life, he can reunify you as well. And so we need to understand that this call to unity, pursuing unity, isn't simply a nice issue. It isn't simply something that sounds good and maybe we'll get to it. This is an identity issue. This is who we now are. If we miss this call to unity, then the truth is we miss the gospel of Jesus. See there in your note sheet, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. 
And he addresses this issue of unity with them. And he says, brothers and sisters. So by using that language, they are Christ followers. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. Would you underline that? Mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? The vision of God, God's vision for your life is to be something more than simply a human being. But disunity is a roadblock to the gospel advancing. Not only is it a roadblock to the advancement of the gospel in the outside world, but disunity is a roadblock to the transformation of the gospel advancing in my life. And so we've talked a lot about this throughout this series. Because again, this is such a core issue. And so what I want to do today is, rather than reiterate some of the places we've been, I want to just give some key, three big picture steps. These aren't on your note sheet, but feel free to write them down about how to pursue unity. And the first one we already talked about is embracing the fact that it's our responsibility to partner with the Lord and advance the gospel. It's the gospel of unity. But the second step is this. If we truly want to pursue and initiate unity, we need to make the difficult admission that we are not naturally good at this. And I gotta be completely honest with you, fam. Admitting that I'm not good at this rubs against my pride and ego. And often, I don't pursue unity because in my pride, I'm blinded to the fact that I think I'm good at this. I think I've got this down. The reality is while we're transformed in the name of Jesus, we still have a tug to sin and the dark side. We will always have that on this side of heaven. And the truth of the matter is disunity honestly feels more natural. Disunity is easier. If we want to be a people that are pursuing gospel advancement through unity, we have to acknowledge that it's a weakness of ours. And because of that, we have to acknowledge that we need to be intentional in how we train and prepare let me illustrate it this way. So when I was 17 years old, I was what you would call the stereotype of a dumb high school boy. Now, I worked with students for many, many years in my life. That is not true of all high school boys, but that was definitely true of me. Now, there's some areas where I had some common sense and wisdom, but in this particular, in this particular uh, story, one of the areas in which I was dumb was that I viewed myself as indestructible. Now, thankfully, I grew up in the 90s, pre-internet and YouTube and all that, because now there is a phenomenon on YouTube and the internet called fail videos. Have you ever encountered fail videos? Fail videos are people doing something dumb and a great calamity befalling them. And what's really interesting about these fail videos is you rarely ever see women in them. And so had that existed when I was in high school, that would have been me because I thought I was indestructible until it all came crashing down because in my idiocy, I was involved in an accident that permanently hurt my shoulder. So I have a permanent shoulder injury to this day because of choices I made when I was in high school. Now, thankfully, I've been fortunate enough that through many doctors, through much therapy and medical care, I don't have many restrictions. I can often have mostly a full range of motion. I can do activities, but it's interesting. What that means is that my shoulder usually always hurts and it spikes easily. One of the times where I feel my shoulder hurt the most is when I take off jackets. Just that range of motion just upsets what's going on. And so because I know I have this weakness, what I need to do is I need to be intentional about what I'm going to do about it. I can either try to ignore it and power through, or I can take care of myself. I have to do stretches, even something preaching, because I use my hands a lot. I have to stretch. I have to do temperature therapies. Sometimes I need to go get physical therapy, but you know what I found out? By acknowledging and not ignoring that this is a weakness, I've been able to not only survive with this injury, I've been able to thrive through it. 
And so the reason I share that is for many of us, that's true when it comes to, love, when it comes to building unity, that we need to understand that it's often a weakness for us. And so if we want to thrive in it, it starts by admitting that, that we need the power of the Lord to transform us and to do this through us. And that leads me to the third step, and it's this. We need to actually believe how Jesus views other people. We need to actually believe how Jesus views other people. We need to take scripture at its word when it says that God so loved the world, we need to actually believe that that is true. We need to actually believe that that involves the people we find difficult, the people that we consider our enemies, people in this world who truly are committing evil acts. Almost a year ago now, we were teaching through the Beatitudes in Matthew in the first heaven unfiltered. And I was teaching on blessed are the peacemakers. And I remember I introduced something that has really been shaping this in my life. And I want to reintroduce it again today. When it comes to pursuing unity, imagine the impact in your life if you began the prayer and the process of everyone you come in contact with of acknowledging two things about them. One, that person was created by my God. And two, that is a person that Jesus died to save. See, often, disunity is easy because we don't feel any type of connection to those people. But when we begin practicing that prayer, that changes things, doesn't it? And think about the impact this can have in your life. Think about the impact in the mundane. If you go out to lunch and your server comes in, if all of a sudden you're now, God created this person and Jesus died to save this person. Think about the impact this is gonna have at your Thanksgiving dinner around the relatives you're dreading to see. <laughs> Think about the impact this truth would have when it comes to your politics. Think about the impact this truth would have when it comes to how you view social issues. Think about the impact this would have when, you, when it comes to people that truly are committing evil in the world. Now hear me very, very clearly, acknowledging this truth is not saying that we agree or even validating an opposing viewpoint. Sin is sin, and nothing is changing that. Evil is evil and nothing is changing that. But again, when I look at the lineup of people God used in the Bible, he often called and transformed some truly evil people and showed the power of God through that. And so this isn't gonna happen on our own strength, but again, imagine the impact of God working through you if you began to see the world, if you began to see the person asking for money on the corner, if you began to see those that are incarcerated, if you began to see those that have deeply hurt you, not to let go or minimize your hurt, but if you began to see even your own family, people that you do well with, if you began to acknowledge regularly that is someone God created, and that is someone Jesus died to save. That doesn't mean that bridges will always be built. Do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane that Peter cuts off a dude's ear? Jesus healed that guy's ear, and then what does that guy turn around and do? Continue to arrest Jesus. But Jesus still showed a unity and an opportunity for that. And so that's the first way God transforms our character. But before I leave that there in your note sheet, I always love how James 1 puts it. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everybody should be quick to listen. Would you underline that? I feel I need to have this tattooed on myself at some point. Everybody should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Hey, you know how this verse has been speaking to me over the last couple of days? When I read, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, I'm applying that first to my relationship with Jesus. I need to be quick to listen and slow to speak when it comes to understanding how he sees other people around me. So that's the first way. Oh, but below it, there's a quote I love in response to that by a theologian named Ed Stetzer. The reason scripture cautions against reacting too quickly is that for the most part, our initial response is stupid. 
It's a pretty good mic drop moment, isn't it? <laughs> Second character trait is this. A transformed character trusts in the unexpected. This is now looking at the example of Epaphroditus. A transformed character trusts in the unexpected. And so let me illustrate this this way. Can I, can I just be honest? Can I share something that has just been weighing on my heart over the last several weeks? Um, I have been just finding sorrow upon sorrow over the last several weeks over my NFL football team. Um, we're halfway through the season, and some of you know I'm a 49er, San Francisco 49ers, faithful fan. Thank you, one, one person. Thank you. Um, Thank you. I, I have loved them since Joe Montana threw to Jerry Rice. And if you don't know who they are, they were just great players of the past. I have always been with them. And the 49ers are a legacy team. Some would even say they're God's team. But, but what no one can say right now is that they are a good team. And they haven't been a good team for several years. And, and it's hurt. But last year, something happened that I hadn't experienced in a long time. We had hope. And what I meant by that is we got a brand new quarterback named Jimmy Garoppolo. We saved him from the, from the dominion of the enemy called the New England Patriots. We saved him. And all of a sudden, as we never win games, he plays five straight and he wins all those games. And so as a fan, you always want to hope. But as we went into the summer, as we went into the offseason, as I'm watching ESPN at SportsCenter, all of these experts, analysts are saying, look at the way the Niners drafted. Look at the way they're all going to come into that coaching style. You know what? This is going to be a good year. Now, no one was saying that we were going to go to the Super Bowl, but people were saying, this is a team to look out for. So that became the expectation. And we started the season and we started doing all right. And then we got to game three and it was as if our players died. <laughs> our savior quarterback suffers a, a season ending injury and he wasn't even tackled. The rest of the team physically falls apart. We are now at the bottom of the league, and it's hard to see since we won this past weekend because we somehow played a team worse than we are. That is the only reason why we won. And what hurts the most about this is, fam, this was supposed to be our year. <laughs> bandwagon as we go into that. <laughs> but here's my point. Man, sometimes the unexpected just happens, doesn't it? Hey, think back to when you were 15 years old. Would you have ever anticipated or imagined the twists and turns your life would have taken? Would you ever have imagined the way your life would have deviated from your plan? Would you ever have imagined the places geographically the Lord would take you? Would you ever have imagined the times of sorrow and intense pain you would have experienced? The physical calamity, the financial calamities, the loss? See, we can't plan for this because life is unexpected. And one thing we see throughout Philippians is that Paul is teaching us Christ followers we cannot place our trust in ever-changing circumstances. We can only place our trust in the never-changing character of Jesus. And how we do that is by developing a one-on-one -on -one relationship with Jesus. That's the heartbeat of our church. Rocky Peak exists to equip you to know how to pursue God. Rocky Peak exists for you to need us a little bit less each time and for you to be able to go out and understand and experience the character of God. And the reason why that is so key is because when the sorrow hits, when these hurricane comes, if you are developing that one-on-one -on -one character, you are experiencing firsthand, not because anybody else is telling you, but because you, through God's word, through prayer, through time alone, have experienced what it means that God is good, what it means that he is present, what it means that he is merciful. What happens in those times is you will have times when life is falling apart. As the apostle says, you have suffered sorrow upon sorrow. You will say, I know nothing else, but I know Jesus is here and I know he is good. 
And there in your note sheet, again from James chapter 1, it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kind, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And so the gospel advances through our transformed character. And in this passage specifically, a character that reflects Jesus through pursuing unity and a character that reflects Jesus through trusting in the Lord in the unexpected. Amen? We invite the worship team to come on out. And as we go into this final time of worship, as we receive our gifts, our offerings as tithe, we're going to sing a song we've often sung here at Rocky Peak, but what I love about the song is that it's almost a double declaration. We are declaring that Jesus is the light in our life, the light of the world, but we are also declaring that he uses us to send this light, to project this light to a world that has yet to know him. And so as we go into this time, as I often say, let this be a declaration of who you are, of who God is, and of the fact that he has called you to advance the mission of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you see something special in us, that you call us to be your partners. Thank you that you equip us through, to, uh, by taking on the character of Jesus. Father, we ask right now if there's any areas of unity, any areas of trusting in which you want to grow us, remind us that it's not because you want us to live in shame and doubt, but it's because it's an opportunity to know you better. Thank you for these words. Thank you for your passage. We love you, Jesus, in your son's name. We all said, amen. Let's stand and worship together. And so Christ followers, we leave this room, literally in the lobby, in the parking lot, as you go to kids or student ministries, as you get in your car, as you go about your day, there are gonna be opportunities for you to advance the gospel. And so remember, it's not on your own strength, it's not on your own metal, but it's done by the power of the Jesus that lives in you. So advance because God is with you. And because of that, you are more than qualified to be his partner. Amen? Whether you're here in the worship center or over on the ridge, there's some prayer over along the right side of the wall. Their prayers are powerful. If you want somebody to cover you in prayer before you leave this place, please stop by and see them. Next weekend, Mike who's going to be here. He's going to be continuing our journey in Philippians. So you got to be here, Rocky Peak. Hope to see you then. Love you guys.